Like when we look around at the culture around us, what's happening? What are the people thinking about? What are they treasuring? What have they set their affections on? What's going on in our culture? We see headlines about gender identity, the ongoing debate about the definition of marriage, debate about the right to life and the right to a woman's right to choose, debates about immigration, both legal and illegal, gun violence and the right to own guns, nationalism versus globalism, climate change, environmental issues, and more and more the talk of a global military threat, the energy debate, fossil fuels versus electricity versus nuclear versus solar, and on and on and on. Ours is a culture that is heavily influenced by this thing called social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, these things didn't exist even 20 years ago. Most of them didn't exist 10 years ago. And now it's difficult to overstate their influence on the culture around us. Ours is a culture that is summarily divided along socio-political lines. And not just divided ideologically, but so much so that it's garnered a cancel culture where anyone that disagrees with you not only disagrees with you, but cancels you and you lose your voice in the culture itself. We're in a culture that is infatuated by entertainment and sports and the celebrities that they produce. You can learn an awful lot about a culture by looking at the heroes that it holds up as heroes. Those that culture says are important and successful and people that we ought to listen to. Who are the culturally accepted heroes of our culture? People like Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Taylor Swift, Tom Cruise. What about the religious culture around us? The spiritual climate of our culture. We're told year after year about the rising proportion of our population in our country that would designate themselves as a nun. Not the Catholic type, but the ones that check on the poll that they claim no affiliation whatsoever. They check none. Gallup research tells us that in the early 50s, that category was practically non-existent, hovered around 1% to 2%. Today, in our culture, in which we live, it's 1 out of 5. It's over 21% of our population that claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. That's part of the culture that we live in. There's also within the religious culture a rise in this phenomenon of of young adults deconstructing their faith, which is just a fancy 
academic word for rejecting Jesus and walking away from the gospel. But why? Why are so many young adults questioning their faith and rejecting the gospel? This is all part of the culture around us. This is part of the culture in which we live and the culture to which we have been sent by Jesus with the gospel to be his witnesses. And so perhaps more pointedly for us this morning, what does faithful gospel witness look like in a culture like that? What what does it look like to faithfully engage in gospel witness, to be witnesses of Jesus in this place and in this time? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And to help us navigate that, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he now finds himself in the ancient city of Athens. This passage will serve to us this morning as essentially a training exercise for us as we seek to learn what it will look like to be a faithful gospel witness to, as a church, have a faithful gospel witness in a culture like ours. So let's read Acts 17, beginning in verse 16 and continuing through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring Being then God's offspring, 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that we can know that this is your very breath to us, given to us for our instruction so that we might know who you are, so we might know who we are as men and women who need a Savior, so that we might know the nature of the church, so that we might know the mission of the church. And God, we ask that you would, through your Spirit, give us not just an understanding of what this says and what this means, but Lord, that you would use your word this morning to transform us to look more like you so that we would be your faithful witnesses to the culture in which we find ourselves and to which you have in your providence sent us. So do your work among us, Lord. As we look at your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is a fascinating story of the Apostle Paul's gospel witness in the city of Athens. And as we look at his gospel witness here from beginning to end, we see several aspects of his gospel witness that is going to inform how we engage in faithful gospel witness to the culture around us. We'll see some similarities and some differences between that culture and the one in which we find ourselves, but also we will see some some prescriptions for how the church of Jesus Christ, and namely us today, can be a faithful gospel witness to the world around us. So we're going to look at Paul's motive for his gospel ministry, that's going to answer the why question. And, and, and it'll, it'll give us a, a compelling why for us to, to leave the confines of these four walls and be his witnesses in the spheres of influence in our culture. So we're going to look at the motive. We're going to look at the setting, the, answering the where question, both, both physically and culturally. We're going to look at his bridge to his gospel witness, answering the how question. How does he do this? How does he go about this? We're also going to look at the content of his gospel witness, the what question. And then finally, we'll look at the response to his gospel witness, answering the question, what happened? So let's look first at the motive that we see there in verse 16. What was Paul's motive? For going into the synagogue and for going into the marketplace and for accepting this 
this opportunity, this invitation to go to the Areopagus. Why did he do this? What was compelling him to do this? I, I suppose that we could come up with a lot of different answers to that question. A lot of different motives that we know from the Apostles Paul's writing in, in his other writings as to what was driving him. Perhaps part of that, I'm sure, is obedience to Jesus. Jesus had said in the first chapter of this book, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And even though the Apostle Paul was not present there at that post-resurrection appearance, ever since Jesus showed, to, showed up to him in that blinding Damascus Road experience, Paul had been that kind of witness for Jesus. And so he knew that being a follower of Jesus meant obeying Jesus' command to make disciples. And so in part, his motive was obedience. In part, I think also we can say that part of his motive here is out of a genuine concern for the lost condition of unbelievers. Whether they're the, the, the lost Jews or, or Gentile proselytes in the, in the synagogue or the lost pagans that he found in the marketplace. Out of a genuine concern for their desperate and hopeless condition apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was compelled to bring the gospel to him. So I think in part it was obedience. I think in part it was a, a genuine concern. But from this passage, the only motivation for the Apostle Paul that is articulated for us in this text is found in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. Remember, he had just, uh, they had escorted him out of Berea because of the Jews that kept following him from town to town, persecuting him. And so they got Paul out of town. Timothy and Silas are, are back on the mainland in, in Macedonia. Uh, but, uh, but Paul here is in Athens by himself. This is one of the only times that we find the apostles doing gospel witness by themselves. Usually they're doing it with one or two others. But here he is by himself. He's waiting for them to show up. He's in Athens. And what happens? His spirit was provoked within him. Because... He saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He was provoked in his spirit. That word provoked literally means to be sharpened as if irritated by grinding. And so Paul, his spirit is provoked here. It's Irritated. Why? Because of what he saw when he looked at the city. He saw a city full of idols. And it bothered him greatly. It, it irritated his soul. It stirred him. Why did it bother him so much? What, what was it about the presence of these idols, these false gods made of gold, silver, and stone that so irritated his spirit and, and, and so stirred him on his insides that he was compelled to go to the synagogue and to go to the marketplace to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was it about the presence of these idols that so provoked him in his spirit? 
Well, Paul had such an appreciation for who God was. He had such a high view of God, as we'll see later in this passage. Such such an appreciation for the glory and majesty and goodness of God that he just could not stand the fact that all these people here in the city made in the image of God were worshiping these idols made by human hands instead of worshiping the God who made them and everyone else and who alone deserved their worship. You see, church, the better we apprehend the glory of God, the the higher our view, or we might say the more in line our view of God is with how the Word of God describes Himself, the better we have a a, a picture, a a grasp, an apprehension of the the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the, the, the highness of the God of the universe, the more compelled we will be in gospel witness. In the hope that God would be rightly glorified and worshipped by those who are currently giving that worship to something or someone else. So Paul's motive for gospel witness here was the worship of God. John Piper has famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Meaning that missions is good. Missions is important, but missions is not the end. Missions is not ultimate. It's not the goal. The goal, what is ultimate, what is the end, is the glory of God. The worship of God by all. That is what is the end. That is what is ultimate. But as long as there remains unredeemed sinners whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and were written there before the foundation of the world, but who have yet to come to faith in Jesus, whether they are near to us or on the other side of the globe from us, as long as that is the case, then we have to be faithful in gospel witness. So that's Paul's motive for gospel witness here in Athens. What's yours? What's your motive for gospel witness? Is it guilt? Is it a checklist? Is it the I ought to? Is it I want to make my shepherding elder proud of me when he comes over to my house next time? Obedience to Jesus is certainly a good and valid motive. A genuine concern for the hopeless lost condition of your lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers is a good and valid motive. But I want us to consider, church, this morning, this third motive that Luke tells us here was the driving force that compelled the Apostle Paul into that synagogue and into the marketplace there in Athens. He knew that God deserved the worship of everything that he made. And yet, as Paul looked around at the city, he saw 
a city full of idols, man-made gods, to whom the vast majority of the population of Athens were worshiping. And it provoked him in his spirit. It irritated his soul. It, it, It stirred him on the insides to such a degree that he was compelled to get out there and tell the folks in the city about the folly of worshiping a God that they made with their own hands while there is a God, the one true God, the one true and living God who is above all, a God who made them and gave them life and sent his son to rescue them from the penalty of their own sin against him. And this God and this God alone deserves all of the worship that they're currently giving to that little little stone idol there in town. And I would submit to you that this motive for gospel witness is the one that most closely mirrors the heart of God himself for why he would redeem sinners back to himself. Why he would send his son to be the sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God and he knows that he alone deserves that worship. And so he was willing to go to such great lengths as sending his very own son to die in our place so that he might redeem sinners like us who couldn't otherwise give him the glory that he deserves back to himself as worshipers. Our culture, likewise, is full of idols. We see them all around us. The idol of gender identity. The idol of social justice. The idol of Christian nationalism. The idol of wealth and materialism. The idol of entertainment, sports, fashion, beauty, health, politics. We could go on. And when we see these idols in our church... Or in our in our culture, probably in our church too. But church, when we see these idols in our culture, our our initial gut reaction should not be to want to change what our culture does, so much as to change what our culture worships. Paul didn't come into Athens with an idol dismantling agenda. No, he came into Athens with a gospel proclaiming. Agenda. If Paul had taken away their idols, we know what would have happened, right? They just would have built more. As John Calvin said so famously, that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. No, if Paul was going to be effective in in drawing the Athenians' worship and devotion away from these idols made by human hands and to the one true and living God, it is the gospel and the gospel alone that was absolutely necessary. So the worship of God was Paul's motive for engaging in gospel witness in Athens. And it should likewise be at least part of, if not the primary motivation for why we seek to be a faithful gospel witness in our culture. We should be so convinced that God deserves the worship of everything that has breath 
That when we see our culture worshiping anything other than him, it should compel us and drive us and provoke us to bring the gospel to them so that they might turn from those idols and turn to the one true and living God who alone deserves that worship. So that's his motive in this gospel witness. What about the setting? What was the setting for his gospel witness here? I think we can think of Paul's setting for gospel witness in Athens, both in terms of the physical setting as well as the cultural setting. We see quite clearly three physical settings in which he engaged in gospel witness. First, the synagogue. That's usually where Paul went when he went into a new town. He went first to the Jews. To me, at least in terms of evangelism, the the synagogue here represents what Paul knew. This was his comfort zone. He had a high degree of knowledge about what happened and the traditions that went on inside the synagogue. He knew what they were like and they knew what he was like. And that's probably the easiest place to start in gospel witness. The setting in which we're the most comfortable. The place that we have the most knowledge about. Why? Because we We kind of know what to expect there. And we have a built-in credibility because we're one of them, right? We're part of them. They know you as one of their own. This might be your workplace. This might be your hunting buddies, your golfing buddies. It might be the ladies in your spin class. Whatever it is for you, it's the place where you're known where you're respected as an insider. They know you and you know them. And there's a certain level of comfort there in that setting because of your knowledge and your experience in that setting. But Paul's gospel witness wasn't limited to just the synagogue. We're told also in verse 17 that he reasoned secondly in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, to me, the marketplace represents getting out of your comfort zone getting away from what you know most intimately and most thoroughly and putting yourself in a situation where you might encounter those that you don't know so well, strangers perhaps, people that you wouldn't otherwise come into contact with and engage them in conversations about Jesus. Maybe this is you getting out to meet some of your neighbors on the other side of your neighborhood and engaging them in a conversation about your faith or taking a walk in the park and being willing to engage in conversations with folks that you wouldn't have met otherwise and talk about your faith in Christ. Or maybe it means like it did for Paul, literally going to the marketplace, whether your workplace or the market, but being intentional about it. And looking for and being aware of the reality of the presence of lost people who need Jesus. And it's in the context of this marketplace evangelism where Paul receives this invitation to the third setting of his gospel witness, the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this rock outcropping that was outside of the city of Athens. It was in the shape of an outdoor amphitheater. And the city officials and the philosophers of the city would gather there 
to discuss and debate important matters. It was named after the Greek god of war, Ares. And so literally, it means Ares rock. Later, it became known for the Roman god of war, which was Mars, which is why some of your Bible translations might refer to this as Mars Hill. Now for us, the Areopagus of Athens represents those unique gospel opportunities that the Lord providentially puts you in because of your faithfulness to engage in gospel witness in the other settings. See, Paul is being faithful to engage in gospel witness in the marketplace. And while he's there, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, their curiosity, which characterized them, was piqued because of what Paul was saying in the marketplace to presumably others. And they just overhear this and they invite him to speak at the Areopagus. So Paul engaged in gospel witness both within his comfort zone in the synagogue, outside of his comfort zone in the marketplace, and in these providentially gospel-ordained gospel opportunities, namely the Areopagus. But equally important in this passage is not just the physical setting, but the cultural setting as well. As Paul was in the marketplace... As he was walking through town, his eyes were open. He was taking it all in. His eyes were open, his his physical eyes, his spiritual eyes were open. He was playing the part of the missiologist. And he was seeking to answer the question, what's going on in this city that intersects with the gospel? Where, Where is sin being manifested in this culture. What does this city treasure? What's important to them? What are they thinking about in this city? What are their affections set on? What is happening in this culture, Paul would think, that's going to provide an on-ramp for a gospel conversation? And so he notices, as Luke records in verse 21, that they like to spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they were intellectually curious. They were philosophically stimulated. And Paul notices this. And he tucks that away. And he thinks, how can I use that as an on-ramp to talk about Jesus? He also noticed... In verse 22, he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now we'll talk in just a moment about how he uses that as a bridge to talk about the gospel. But... For now, I just want us to consider that Paul was intentionally and deliberately exegeting the culture to see what they loved, to see what they worshipped, to see what occupied their minds, to see what sin they engaged in. And he was making mental notes all along the way for how he can utilize that information as a bridge to the gospel. And our challenge is to do the same. You see, not only do we need to exegete exegete the scriptures, but we need to exegete the culture around us. 
Do you know what your neighbors love the most? Do you know what is most important to them? Do you know what challenges they face? What their weaknesses are? Where they tend to mess up the most often? I would submit to you that we can't know that stuff without diving into their lives and wading into their lives to learn that. So as we do in our conversations and our relationships with our lost friends, <clears throat> excuse me, neighbors and coworkers, these are the sorts of questions that we need to be answering in our own minds. So that like missiologists, we can determine how best to intersect their life with the gospel and with gospel truths. So that naturally leads to the third aspect of Paul's gospel witness in Athens, and that is the bridge to his gospel witness. Because he rightly exegeted the culture around him, as he stood in the Areopagus, note that he did not start his address with Scripture. That's typically what he did when he was with his fellow Jews and the Gentile proselytes who were in the synagogues. He began with the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Because they knew them. They were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures and there was a sense of a respect for the Hebrew Scriptures. Not so with the Athenians. They neither knew the Scriptures nor had any respect for their authority. And so Paul didn't start by appealing to the authority of Scripture. Instead, he starts with what they treasure. He starts here with what they know, what they believe. And then he begins to show the shortcomings of that worldview. He says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That word for religious there is interesting. It literally means demon fearers. That's, that's who you are. You are demon fearers. That was neither a compliment nor a diss. He was just stating the fact. You've got a lot of demons around here, and they're the ones that you worship. You are demon fearers. We might rightly say today they were very spiritual. And the reason for Paul's conclusion to this effect is because he was walking through the town. He had his spiritual eyes open. He noticed there many objects of worship. In other words, their man-made idols. And then he also saw an altar to the unknown God. It had the inscription, to the unknown God. It's interesting that that phrase, to an unknown, in the Greek, is agnosto. Is where we get our English word agnostic, that which is unknowable. And agnostic is someone who says that if there is a God, it is unknowable. It, it's, un, it's, it's not knowable to know that if there is God. And, and if he's there, we can't know him. It's, it's unknowable. And the Athenians are worshiping that which to them is unknowable. The Greeks were a pantheistic people. They had... The worship of many gods. I think there were 12 in the Greek pantheon. But just in case they missed one, just in case they had overlooked one, they also erected an altar to what they called the unknown God. Paul sees this. He notices it. And he thinks, I can use that as an on-ramp to the gospel. And so he says at the end of verse 23, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
Now, he's not saying here, you're worshiping the one true God. You're worshiping Yahweh. You just don't know his name yet. He's not saying that. What he's saying here is that you're worshiping everything. Everything that you can find, you you worship. Even a God that you say you don't even know. But I proclaim to you the one true and living God who is above all other gods. And he is fundamentally knowable. So Paul starts with what they treasure and what they know. He shows the shortcomings of that. He uses language that they're familiar with instead of Christianese that only Jesus followers would understand. He even quotes some of their own poets in verse 28. As he, as he quotes from these poets, he's using culturally accepted axioms as launch pads to talk about gospel truths. These quotes from these Stoics, Epimenides and Aratus in verse 28, were culturally accepted sayings that, that would have been commonly known by the people there in Athens. Paul is not appealing to them as authoritative. He's not saying Epimenides knows his stuff, Aratus knows his stuff. No, he's using those common phrases, those culturally accepted axioms as launch pads to talk about real truth, to talk about the gospel. So what does our culture treasure? What does our culture believe? And how can we show the shortcomings of that worldview? How can we potentially alter our language when talking with people who are living in a culture that more and more and more with each passing year is growing more and more post-Christian and has zero foundational biblical knowledge? What are the culturally accepted axioms that we can use as launch pads to gospel truths? Axioms perhaps like Just believe in yourself and you can do anything. Or you deserve to be happy. Or you do you, boo. (laughs) I've actually never heard that, but I was asking Susan some culturally accepted axioms and she gave that one to me. She was floored that I'd never heard it. How you live your life is your own business. It doesn't affect anybody else. How about, you know, when Uncle Billy dies, his suffering is going to be over, regardless of how he lived his life, and he's going to be in a better place. And he's going to watch over me. How does the gospel intersect with these culturally accepted sayings? See, if we're thoughtful We can use those axioms as launch pads to talk about gospel truths, just like Paul did in Athens. And then once that bridge has been crossed, once that launch pad has launched the conversation into spiritual topics, then we get to the content of gospel witness. So what was Paul's content of his gospel witness? What did he say in his gospel witness there in Areopagus? First, I think, it's clear that we can conclude from his address here as we look at it in context is that it was focused on Jesus. It was focused on the Christ. Paul begins and ends his Mars Hill sermon talking about Jesus. In verse 18, we're told that 
some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And why do they conclude that? We're told at the end of verse 18, because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And in order for him to preach about Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, then he necessarily also had to preach about the cross and his death and what it accomplished, his atonement. And then at the end of the sermon, in verse 31, he says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all By raising him from the dead. Paul's preaching was saturated with Jesus. And our conversations with our lost friends and co-workers, when we're talking to them about gospel truths, it likewise, our conversations need to be saturated with Jesus. His life, his, his perfectly righteous life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his victorious physical resurrection from the dead was saturated with the gospel. We would be hard-pressed to articulate a single gospel truth without talking about Jesus. Church, we got to talk about Jesus. God loves you. God has a purpose for your life. God bless you. God answers prayer. Friend, these are These are sayings that are true, but ultimately empty apart from Jesus and what he did at the cross. So his message was focused on Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Second, as we look at the content of his message, his witness, he talked about the nature of who God is. And I would submit to you that that this was hand-tailored for this Athenian audience here. Because of their pagan and pantheistic worldview, because they believed that you could make a god out of gold, silver, or stone and fashion him with human hands, and, 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 and that's a god, because that was their concept of God, it was culturally necessary For him to spend adequate time explaining who Yahweh is. Their concept of God was so far removed from a biblical concept of the nature of God that it was culturally necessary for him to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the nature of God. That takes up the bulk of his address here at the Areopagus. He explains, and we don't have time to go through all of this in depth, but he explains that Yahweh is creator He's he's, he's not a God that's made. He is a maker. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the creator of the world and everything in it. He is Lord. In other words, he is ruler of heaven and earth. There is no other thing over which he does not rule. He emphasizes here ad nauseum that this God is not like their idols. He's not made with human hands. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He doesn't reside in a a building or an altar like their gods do. And he's not served by humans. And that that word gives the connotation that 
that, I mean, certainly we serve God, but his point here is that God cannot be fixed by human hands. See, they had to fix their idols when they broke. They had to polish their idols when they got faded. He said, this, is, this, this God that I'm talking to you about is, is not like that at all. He's not dependent on, on humans to, to, to service him. Instead, humans are dependent on him, he explains. He explains to them that, that he is the source of all life. He explains that, that from one man, he made every kind of man, not just the Jews, but every kind of man, including you guys in Athens. And he explains that he is sovereign. He says he's sovereign over time and space. Verse 26, God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And he explained that he's sovereign over even the humans' search for him. Verse 27, he he determined not only their time and boundaries, but he also determined that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What about our culture? What what gospel truth might we need to spend an inordinate amount of time with in our gospel conversations because of the cultural presuppositions of our culture? Maybe it's the concept of sin. Our culture denies that there is such a thing as absolute truth. That, that, that there is such a thing that, that something is true, not just for one person, but for everyone, you, me, and everyone. And if that's the case, if there is no absolute truth, then there can be no concept of sin. Because sin, in its essence, is a missing the mark. It is a crossing of the boundary. And if there is no mark and there is no boundary, then there is no concept of sin. And without the concept of sin, there is no way to recognize a need for a Savior. Maybe that's the culturally necessary component for our gospel conversations. Or maybe it's just the same as Paul's here. You see, ours is not a pantheistic culture in general but rather an atheistic and agnostic culture where culture either denies that there is the possibility of an all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who is above all or denies that if there is such a God, he can't be known. So maybe it's culturally necessary for us to concentrate our gospel conversations on the nature of who God is, just like Paul does here in Athens. But even with that, we must ensure that our conversations are focused on Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Whatever the culturally necessary thing is that we need to make sure that we hit in our gospel conversations, it needs to be couched within the central message of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. But then Paul's gospel witness here, thirdly, calls for a response. Look at verses 30 and 31. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
He called on them to repent, to turn from their idolatry and to turn to this God that he has just explained to them by turning to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again. I think this is probably the most often overlooked and avoided part of our gospel conversations, our gospel witness. Perhaps because it requires us to move from explanation to exhortation. You see, we can explain gospel truths all day long. God, man, Christ. Who is God? What has man done? What is the need for Christ? But in calling for a response, we're exhorting them to do something. We're exhorting them to admit that they are a sinner that they have rebelled against God and that they can do nothing to save themselves, that they are hopelessly lost, not just in this life, but forever in the next life. And that they are in desperate need for God to save them. And it requires a response. It requires them to admit that they can't save themselves. But unless we call for a response... How will our friends know how to respond to the gospel? They might understand more about Jesus. They might understand more about the gospel, but they're still lost until they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Calling for a response is, is showing them how to do that and exhorting them to do that. Repent and believe on Christ for salvation. Paul's gospel witness in Athens here is the worship of God. The physical settings or the synagogue, the marketplace, and the Areopagus. But he also considered the cultural setting of his gospel witness. He kept his eyes open. He sought to exegete the culture around him to look for those on-ramps to the gospel. He bridged that from those things to conversations about gospel truths. And the content of his gospel witness was threefold. It was focused on Jesus. It explained the nature of God, which was culturally necessary there in Athens. And it called for a response. So what was the response? That's the fifth and final aspect of Paul's gospel witness in Athens. What happened? Verse 32 and following. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some mocked, rejected, laughed it off. Others were curious. They wanted to hear more. And some believed. And Paul wasn't in control of any of it. It was all up to God. And the same is true for us in our gospel witness. We don't control who will respond, how many will respond, if any will respond. That's not our responsibility because that's not up to us. It's up to God and His sovereign grace. Our job, all we need to focus on is being a faithful gospel witness in our mission field, our culture. Paul did that. He faithfully engaged in gospel witness here in Athens. 
And we can too, church. Our faithful engagement in gospel witness in our culture is going to require a compelling motive. What's going to get us out of these seats, off our couch, and to our neighbors, across the hall to our coworkers, across the community to the person who needs Jesus? What's going to provoke us in our spirit? It's going to require a commitment to a variety of settings, both physically and culturally. It's going to require an understanding of the culture, of our mission field, and how to intersect it with gospel truths. It's going to require a fundamental commitment to the biblical content of the gospel itself. And it's going to require a trust. A trust in God's sovereign grace that the results are not up to us, but to Him. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the gospel witness of your servant Paul in this culture that was opposed to the gospel, we see lots of ways in which we can learn how to be a more faithful gospel witness to the culture around us. But Father, I pray that we would do that not out of guilt, but out of a genuine apprehension of your glory, your worthiness, Father, your worthiness of the worship of everything that you have given breath, your worship deserving of the worship even of the rocks that will cry out if we don't. You deserve the worship of all mankind. So, Father, when we see the idols around us, may it break our heart, may it provoke our spirit, not just to simply conclude what dirty, rotten sinners they are, but that we would conclude you deserve the worship they're giving to that celebrity, that endeavor, that pursuit. You deserve it, Lord. And may it compel us to give them the hope that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, Father, we, we must confess that the idols that we speak of in the culture around us are also present in our hearts and lives. And if we are going to take on the mantle of being a witness for Jesus, we must vigilantly, vigilantly, clean house in our own heart of the affections we set our hearts on, the things that we pursue after more than you. Clean out our hearts of the idols that we give ourselves to, Lord, so that we can be used as your faithful vessel to deliver your gospel truths. Father, as we consider this, we Know that even in the midst of this very room, there are those who are giving their worship to something or someone else that they've never come 
to the recognition that you alone deserve their worship. Why? Because they are dead and lost in their trespasses and sins. Father, they need to be regenerated. They need new life in Christ. So God, we pray that you would bring conviction of their idolatry, conviction of their sin, conviction of their rebellion against you, and a recognition that their only hope to be rescued, redeemed, and reconciled back to you is the good news of Jesus, that he died on the cross for the sins of mankind to rescue us from what we deserve. Father, we pray for that person that you would grant them genuine repentance and saving faith to trust in Christ alone. Father, you deserve our worship and you deserve the worship of every person that you gave breath to. Help us, Father, to be faithful in that gospel witness so that you are so worshiped. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.